the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. They were going through all the motions exactly as instituted by God, but God had no part of it because they removed God from it. Join us now for Grace to the Bay as we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ through sound expository teaching by our teacher, Dr. Roger Chen. Grace to the Bay is the radio outreach of Grace Church of the Bay Area located in San Mateo. If you are blessed by Dr. Chen's message and are looking for a church home, you're invited to come worship with them. Now, here is Dr. Chen. As we move to our third aspect of the perversion of the Lord's Supper, Paul will explain big picture what the perversion is. And then when we close with our fourth point, though I've mentioned it several times already, he will explain specifically what they are doing. But let's start with the big picture in our third aspect of the perversion of the Lord's Supper. Big picture, this is a big deal. The removal of... Of deity, the removal of God. Look at verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Supper was the main meal of the Romans and Greeks. It was our dinner, essentially. It was the biggest meal. It was in the evening. It closed the day. It was also the meal that you would tend to gather for. We do that just because of logistics. We tend to invite people for dinner because we're at work during lunch and breakfast is just early and it's usually with family or whatever. Dinner is the main meal. Main meal of the day when you're alone, main meal of the day when you're fellowshipping or gathering with family and friends. You guys get it. As mentioned earlier, this was a full meal, a normal full meal. Not normal, uh, a little irregular because a normal meal would just be at home with your family but normal in the sense of they were eating a full course meal and then at the end would be communion. And this would be done at church with the church people. Now this point, point three in our outline is very short, but one that needs to be its own because of the severity of the sin. And if you have the ESV or NIV, it actually helps us understand more uh, accurately what the Greek says and understand the problem. Those versions say it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. See, they had so sinned in focusing on themselves and neglecting others with the result of divisions within the church that they had basically removed God from the meal. These are Christians. This is church. They are calling it the Lord's Supper, but Paul is saying it's not the Lord's Supper. You have removed the Lord from this meal, from this gathering. Rest assured, they are going through the motions. The bread, the cup, 
the words of Christ, do this in remembrance of me, there was most likely one individual, a leader of the church, who was doing that, just like I do when we have communion. Let's do that together and eat it. They were going through all the motions exactly as instituted by God, but God had no part of it because they removed God from it. The Lord's Supper, but they had removed the Lord. I don't know about you, but for me, that is a terrifying thought. It's terrifying. To do things in the name of the Lord, per the command of the Lord, as the Lord has dictated and has nothing to do with the Lord. It reminds me of Matthew 7, where those who prophesy, cast out demons, heal people, perform miracles in the name of the Lord say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in Your name for You. In the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, I never knew You. I never knew you, which means including while you were doing those things. In the name of the Lord, they had done what the Lord had commanded, but removed the Lord. We are true believers. We rest in that hope. We are intimately known and will be accepted by God into His kingdom. Nothing can remove our salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. But this is a stark reminder of the importance of of heart and the danger of law, the danger of legalism, the danger of going through the motions, of calling yourself a Christian, of coming to church, of going to small group, of answering the questions, of standing, sitting, standing, open your Bible, sit, pray, bow your head. Where's your heart? Where's your heart? Is what you are doing for the Lord in the name of the Lord Truly, your motivation in your heart for the Lord, in the name of the Lord? Or is it for your own reputation? Or is it so you don't look bad? Or is it to appease your conscience so you feel okay, check off the list, don't look bad in front of that person? Maybe it's to come here just so you can yell at someone that upset you this week. And you have come as a child of God to fellowship with the people of God in the house of God, singing words to God, hearing a preacher of God, but you've removed God. A powerful warning here from the Corinthians and Paul's rebuke. We need to be careful, especially when it's something like the Lord's Supper that above everything else demands your heart, your righteousness, your selflessness, and your love. That's a general warning, the general perversion, the removal of deity. Let's go to the specific in our fourth and final point, the revelry of debauchery. This is what they were doing. So having seen the big picture issue of divisions and removing Christ from His own supper, we now get into the details of exactly how the Corinthians removed the Lord from the Lord's Supper. He begins by stating, stating the problem in verse 21 and then highlighting the gravity of the offense with four rhetorical questions, as he often does. 
in verse 22. Let's start with verse 21. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What's happening is that rather than having a communal meal, everyone is bringing their own food. But the more problematic issue is that nobody was sharing. In this practice, they also gravitated, as I mentioned earlier, toward their own friends, and they didn't interact with others. It gets worse. The rich or the upper class would have more food, better food, abundant food. Some of the poor would come to the church and the Lord's Supper with absolutely nothing. So there were two extremes, having nothing to eat or having so much to eat that you are gorging on both food and wine to the point that some of the wealthy are getting drunk in church at the Lord's Supper. To be clear, for the poor, this was not an issue of someone not wanting to eat by choice. They're not eating because they don't have any food, and these rich guys who have a, a ton of food are not giving them any. In the church, at the Lord's Supper. They have no other choice because they have nothing. They can't afford anything. Maybe they can embarrass themselves and sneak some food that's fallen off the table when the rich get drunk and pass out. Imagine that scene at a church. And you can see how in their selfish practices, they would even more tend toward their own friends within their social classes Rich don't want to party in front of someone who's going to be a downer sitting there asking for food in their tattered clothing. And, of course, they also just don't want to associate with the lower class. And though you couldn't really tell in our society today as much, uh, you've seen the historical depictions and books and TV shows. The rich and the poor dressed very differently, especially in the Roman Empire. It was very clear who was rich and who was poor. And here's the thing. In that society, much of what they were doing in church was common outside of the church. For example, historians have told us that it was a well-known practice to have what was called basket meals, which is someone would invite you over to their home, a bunch of people to their home, and say, well, it's going to be a basket meal, so you actually bring your own food. You've done this. We've done this as a church. Hey, let's all, everyone go down to Burlingame Avenue, buy some lunch, and we'll have a picnic at the, at the park. And you all bring your own food. That's fine. It's well known. It was a common practice in that society. It was also common for the upper class to overindulge in wine and food at a private party in their own home or at someone else's home. It was actually expected for the host to provide enough for this to happen. The problem is they're taking social norms, some of which are fine outside of the church, such as basket meals, but are sinful and contrary to Christ-likeness when applied to the Lord's Supper. There's nothing wrong with a basket dinner. And you know, even today, it is just basic manners to provide more, not less, then your guests can eat when you invite them over for food. But that's not what this is. This is a communal meal. 
the Christians would refer to it as a love feast. It was to focus on Christ and His body, not on self. And I would imagine even if we did go to Washington Park and someone's kind of not having any food, they would probably get annoyed by how many people were checking on them. Hey, do you want some of my sandwich? Are you okay? But if you look at this verse, verse 21, if you really want to summarize the root of the problem from the verse itself, it is the phrase, each one takes his own. Each one takes his own. It highlights their self-focus and selfishness. Just a word so you're not confused about that phrase. It indicates that some had started a meal earlier. This, of course, would be the rich who rather than waiting for the fellowship wanted to have this long party and so they would start eating their abundance of food before the people who had nothing got there. Just extend their party and perhaps remove their guilt in not sharing with others. So let's move on to verse 22. He says, What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Four rhetorical questions. You understand a rhetorical question is not meant to be answered. It's to prove a point. The first highlights that they are behaving at the Lord's Supper at a way that can be done at home. In other words, you don't come to the church and the Lord's Supper to indulge and do what you want. If you just wanted to have a party with your friends and overeat, you have a house. Do that at home. Don't do that at church. At church, you are to focus on God. You are to share with others. I want to note that he's not saying that getting drunk or in engaging in gluttony is okay at home or as long as you don't do it at church. He's saying that some behaviors that are appropriate at home at a meal are not appropriate at church, especially when celebrating the death of Christ. You get this. Back when we would have potluck lunches after uh, communion, you don't come to the table and see 20 people in line behind you and there's only 20 of a certain item left and you take them all. You look back and you say, well, I'm going to keep it for other people. You don't treat it like an all-you-can-eat buffet, which is okay at an all-you-can-eat buffet or even at home. You just don't do that at church, especially when you're celebrating selflessness. Maybe these days you say, well, we usually don't do this just because it's once a year, kids. I want you to see. I want you to be inspired. We're going to kind of move our, our, our dinner to the living room and watch the Olympics. You don't do that at church. But those are appropriate at home. That's Paul's point. He says, you, you want to act like this? Do it at home. You want to segregate yourself into the rich? Then go invite the rich to your fancy house and do it at home. This is not the place. It's not okay. You can focus on yourself. You can be selfish. You can just hang out with that group at home. But to only focus on yourself or your group of friends at a meal that is to embody the fellowship and selflessness of Christ is wholly inappropriate. It's sinful. And quite simply, if what you have in mind when coming to the Lord's Supper is a party or a private dinner 
Or like, oh yeah, I'm going to skip breakfast because it's potluck today so I can pig out on other people's dime. Then go home and do that there. There's no reason to feast at the church and make a public spectacle of yourself. We've had lean days of our potlucks. And I try to secretly go around and say, hey, let, let, let's let the visitors have some food first. And every time I realize I don't need to do that. Because especially deacons, but also all the members, they're already like, oh yeah, I wasn't going to eat because I saw that we didn't bring as much today. I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm saying I'm so thankful for this church because they have that already, that mindset, which is in complete contrast to what the Corinthians are doing. Don't make a spectacle of yourself. Don't draw attention to yourself and your selfishness and your sin and your bad habits and draw away from the glory of Christ and the meaning of the Lord's Supper. When you neglect these truths, Paul says you despise the church of God and you shame the poor, as indicated in the second question. Wow. Here are these guys probably thinking they're doing nothing wrong. It's like, yeah, there's all these politics out there. I finally get to fellowship with my rich buddies, have a meal. I've been waiting all week to prepare this special food for my friends. Had this bottle of wine I've been saving up. It's good. It was a good day. It was a good day with God's people. And Paul is saying, you despise the church. And you're shaming the poor. It's a serious accusation. So focused on self that you don't just ignore the church of God. You despise it. Literally to think nothing of it. To think of it with contempt to despise, look down upon. We've been there, maybe not at the church, but someone treats you in a way that you feel looked down upon. You thought everything was fine and their behavior indicates that they really don't like you, they're mad at you, maybe they even hate you. All the while, that person is unaware of the effects on you, how their behavior impacts you. And you think, does this guy despise me so much that they would say that to me? Do they despise me so much that you would, you would treat me like this? Have I hurt you so badly that you would say that? And Paul is saying that's what they're doing to the church. That's what they're doing to the poor by acting in opposition to what the church is supposed to be. It's like the, the poor are sitting there watching them getting drunk and party, just uh, waiting, which is not what it's for, but waiting for communion so they can have that little piece of bread. And you can imagine their thoughts, like trying to give them the benefit of the doubt because they're Christians, but do, they, do the rich really despise us that much? Do they really think so lowly of us? I get that it happens in society and the parliament members, and definitely Caesar, but these, do they really hate us that much? And so they shame the poor. They make them feel small and worthless, treated as second-class citizens. It's not that they necessarily set out to do this. They didn't say, hey, look at what food are you going to bring? Let's make them feel small today. They're not trying to do that, but they do that. We've all been in that situation, and if you haven't, praise God. I'm thankful for that. But we've all been in a situation where we just feel really embarrassed. 
Right? Whether we miss the memo that it was a black tie affair at work and we show up in jeans and a t-shirt, or we show up at the wrong time, we come with the wrong thing, or maybe it is because everyone's talking about their European vacation this summer and you're the one kid at school going, uh, we went to Curiosity and you're embarrassed, you're shamed because your parents didn't have money or they didn't have the time to take you. We've all been in that situation. Can, can you imagine on a regular weekly basis that poor people feel like that in this church? At the Lord's table, at church, in our lives, but especially at the Lord's table, all sin should be left behind. And this, you know, as you know, is segueing into what we'll see in a week or two about the severity, the seriousness of examining our hearts before we take communion, to not take it in an unworthy manner. Otherwise, we eat and drink judgment and wrath unto ourselves. And now you get it. Now you get how, how bad it was. All sin should be left behind. No selfishness, no overindulgence, no bitterness, no racism, no sexism, no feelings of superiority, no flexing your wealth, none of it. And the third question, what shall I say to you, shows Paul's just, he's incredulous. We would say he's at a loss for words. What, should, what can I say? This is unbelievable. He's bewildered. Is this really possible? And then he comes full circle with the end of the verse by saying that there is no cause for praise here. Only rebuke and shock. What does this all mean for us? How do you view God's people and the sacredness of our gatherings? They use this for weddings. They use this for self-help seminars. This is hotel carpet. And sometimes we walk in here and we say, oh, What's up with these guys? It's a hotel this month. It's a school next month. It's that next month. It's, things are falling apart. The, you know, the sound's not working one day, and it's this next day. And, and we start thinking like it's a restaurant where we can say, what's going on? Eh, the hostess last week was better because we see these normal things, and sometimes we forget the sacredness of what we are doing and what this means. We dress up because we're told to because our parents used to, because someone said something, because of peer pressure. And so we get dressed up, not because of the sacredness of the meeting and the holiness of God, but because it's what church people do. Eat, sip, pray, okay, yeah. It's what we do once a month. Or do you really understand the seriousness of what all of this is, better or worse? That's your choice. This is the danger. There are way more benefits and blessings, but there are dangers. Of your favorite pastor that you listen to this week on the radio, you watch their YouTube video while you're eating, while you're driving, while you're just lying in bed. You want to learn, you want to be informed. That's okay, that's fine. Listen, I'd rather you listen to sermons while you're jogging or when you're getting ready for work or whatever than something else. That's good. 
But if we view it the wrong way, it fuels our lack of understanding of what church is. It's just the sermon. I want to find a church that preaches the word. And we're just honed in on, I want to find a church like MacArthur's church that teaches like, I want to find a master seminary grad. And it's just about the sermon. And it just becomes like what you listen to on your podcast, but in person. This is the extra danger of the live stream that we had out of necessity for many months. Just click on and, and it, it's impersonal. There's no sense of sobriety there. I'm not trying to give you a leg workout when we ask you to stand when we sing. We stand because God deserves it. We stand, remain standing for the reading of God's Word because frankly, it's the reading of God's Word. But we've forgotten that. We stand because we're supposed to stand. And we sit when the guy tells us to sit. We have to understand the sacredness of the gathering of God's people, especially on a Sunday morning, especially when we fellowship over communion and the Lord's table. I grieve as I read 1 Corinthians, as I'm sure you do, but I'm so thankful for their negative example and that we can learn from them in Paul's rebuke. How do you view all of this? And if you tend towards the worse, then let's get better. And by God's grace, we can and we will. Let's pray. This has been Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen. For the next part in this series, join us next week at this same time. Grace to the Bay is the radio ministry of Grace Church of the Bay Area, practicing and proclaiming the purity of biblical truth. You are invited to join them for worship services in San Mateo, Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit gracebayarea.org for service times, directions, live streamed services, listen to archived sermons, or to make a tax-deductible donation to help keep Grace to the Bay on the air so that we can continue to share Pastor Roger's teaching with you each week. Again, that's gracebayarea.org. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.